following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. I was telling Anthony beforehand, I've gone back and forth on whether I think this is really going to be super amazing or really boring. So I'll let you decide that. But you can pretend to be really interested um, because I like it. Uh, as Anthony was saying, as I as I get older too, as I learn more things, I'm teaching a Sunday school class right now um, that its focus is primarily the Old Testament. And as I see these connections, these themes that are woven throughout all of Scripture, um, it's it's had me seeing things where it's like, oh, this book isn't just another weird old prophet guy saying raving at people that he's upset at and not understanding what was going on and who they were talking to and what was going on. But in the last year or so, this is the first time I've gone, I mean, I want to read Amos or Habakkuk or Numbers. Um, that's not a normal thing for me. I don't know if that's a normal thing for you, but um, that has been an interesting change in studying this stuff. So like Anthony said, this does tie into, because he's been doing this study of Hebrews, um, which is written to Hebrews, which are people who are Hebrew from Israel. Um, these are God's people of promise in the Old Testament, the covenant people. So there's been a whole lot of parallels between what Anthony's been talking about in Hebrews and what we've been covering in Sunday school. And this one, again, tended to line up. So I get to be up here. So um, I've, I've really enjoyed this this study of Hebrews, um, especially these recent messages where Anthony has made the connection to the um, the temple and what the Bible says about the temple and how that connects to the church today, modern language. Um, I am going to take a slightly different approach, ends up in the same place, uses the same Bible, um, but the idea here is I want to use this temple language that I'm going to argue is throughout the Bible and use it to connect an overall theme, a biblical narrative that goes from beginning to end, um, from from the beginning of creation all the way into eternity, and show that this is the whole point of the Bible. So, uh, to make this case, I'm going to use the very beginning of the Bible, the very end of the Bible, and some stuff in between. So, to begin, the Old Testament, does anyone else think it's kind of weird? Uh, I mean, there's talking animals, there's people getting on a big boat, a guy gets eaten by a fish, a plant gets on fire and talks. It's weird. Um, they're not normal things that we read about or think about today. Uh, depending on where you're reading, there are tons of numbers, uh, tons of people who begat other people who begat other people, and then more begats that get you, are easy to get lost in. Lots of wars. I can't keep track of who they're fighting right now, but... Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. The names of people, even if you're trying... I, when I watch the, the Godfather or even Lord of the Rings or something, it's these names are not normal names. I, I confuse people. The Bible is like that. Jeconiah, Jedaniah, Hezekiah, who? There's a lot of people with similar names, and because they're foreign to me, I can't keep them straight. But once you start to see, you kind of get your head in the same place where they were, it starts to make sense, and it starts to... You start to remember people because they are different people, astonishingly. Um, and, well, by the way, this is something, if you want to come to my Sunday school class from here on out, we talk about these kind of things, and you might pick up little bits and pieces. But going through the, continuing the Old Testament, we get to the temple. God's describing this place that he wants for himself. Initially, the tabernacle that gets set up and travels with the people of Israel through the wilderness. And it gets really weird. God chooses the fabric, the dimensions, what things are going to be made out of what color they are. Um, he's got some furniture that's kind of weird. He's got an altar. 
uh, a box that's made out of gold or is covered with gold, a sea, a giant thing that they call the sea that's full of water that I guess would have weighed 14 tons, which is a lot of water. Um, a an altar at the front um, or um, next, I'm sorry, an altar with the 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 sea that's held up by oxen which is normal, um, a gold-covered box that has stone tablets and a stick and some bread in it. I mean, they're weird things if we don't know what goes before and what they are. So regardless how this sounds to us, there's a storyline here. These things all have reasons, which shouldn't be surprising. The Bible is a cohesive, uniform story from beginning to end. It's the story about who God is and what that means for us. It includes details about where humanity came from uh, and where humanity is going. And this story is all the same, beginning to end. Uh, And I think this is particularly evident when you look at the temple. Just as a little bit of a preview of what I'm going to be talking about, we're going to bounce around a bit, like I said, throughout throughout the scripture. Um, Many of the references will be on the screen. They're all in your notes as well. And good grief, when I'm giving parallels, I tried to list some examples in, in my footnotes, but I had to quit at some point because it could be just loaded with, with uh, cross-references because this is so prevalent. But the theme we're going to focus on today centers around how um, the Garden of Eden in the first chapters of the Bible and the reality described in the last chapters of the Bible are talking about the same thing. And we'll connect this, like I said, throughout the Bible. Uh, and to make it easy, we're going to start with something you're all really familiar with and it's easy to understand and agree about, um, the end of Revelation. So uh, that's where we're going to start. Um, but before I start, I want to say something about symbolism. Um, there's going to be a lot of reference to symbolism today. And sometimes this upsets people because they hear symbolism and they hear, oh, well, he thinks this isn't true. But that's not what I'm talking about. There's a sense in which symbolism is even more true. So if you were to describe your spouse or something or someone that you love with just adjectives, you know, talking about the color of their hair, the weight of them, how many centimeters tall they are, all these these descriptors like that, okay, they're true enough. But when you really get into it and you say, man, she's the sunshine of my life, or he just lights up my day, or I, the things that you use end up being symbolic language. That's the way that we can best communicate oftentimes. So symbolism doesn't mean something isn't true. It means it's maybe even more true, and this is how we're trying to explain it. There's a sense in which it's even more real. Um, for an example outside the Bible, did C.S. Lewis intend for us to think that the Narnia or that Narnia and the witch and the lion and the battle and all these things were all fiction. I mean, in a sense, it's fiction. It's probably the section of the store it's in. But these were very real things. When he mentions a lion, he's not intending you to think a literal lion. And I don't like the word literal, so don't take that literally. Um, He doesn't want you to think of a beast with hair and a tail. I mean, that's a picture but he wants to think you to think about Jesus Christ. It's pretty evident. This is what he is trying, the picture he's trying to paint. He's trying to teach you about something else by using symbols. Uh, this is throughout the Bible, too. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. That doesn't mean it's small and insignificant. Um, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl and a treasure. He didn't mean the kingdom of heaven was not real. He meant it was very real, but he's trying to explain aspects of it in a way that we could somehow grasp partially. Um, When God told the kingdom of Judah that David would rule again in the future, he didn't mean 
that king that everybody liked that ruled for 40 years, he's coming back to life. That's not what he meant. He wasn't talking about David, but he was. He meant someone in the line of David, someone who ruled like David, someone who was like God like David. He meant that there would be a king coming who would be David in a very real sense. So he's using symbolism to explain a true thing. Um, So, these symbols are clues. This doesn't mean, when I talk about symbols, this doesn't mean these aren't real things. They're very real. So let's start at the beginning of Revelation 21, the second to the last book of the Bible. Um, I'm just going to get a few phrases and terms out of the way. It talks about, this is the only place in Scripture that it uses this phrase. There might be one other place in the Old Testament, actually. But it's mostly in Revelation where it uses the phrase, new heavens and new earth. Which, just reading past it or hearing it in the past, it's kind of confusing. Like, God's tired of his heaven, or he's going to recreate earth and recreate heaven in the future. But that's not what's happening here. I'll tell you what's happening. The phrase heaven and earth, we have to understand that first before we can understand new heaven and earth. Heaven and earth is, I said we're going to go from both ends. Let's look at the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. So what was a heaven and the earth? It's what God created. It's a code word, a phrase that's supposed to remind you of creation, all of creation. Heaven and earth is what God made. So it's just a figure of speech to refer to all this. In our language, it might be more helpful to think of earth and sky rather than earth and heaven, because heaven is, in the Bible, it's got three different uses. We can talk about that in Message Plus if you want to understand the difference there. Um, So I think in terms of one thing, creation, rather than two, heaven and earth. Um, So heaven here doesn't refer to where God lives, God's abode, where he is now. He's not recreating that. That's not what the phrase means. So what does it mean when it says it's a new heaven and new earth? Does this mean that the current heaven and earth, the, God's current creation is going to be destroyed in fire and it's going to burn and then he's going to make a whole new one from scratch? Maybe. Or does it mean that God is going to renew everything, make all things new, fix everything that's broken? Maybe. It could be either one. I don't know. There's, there are things in scripture that, that make us think both things. And honestly, this is a topic that's been debated for a long, long time. It doesn't really matter where you come down on it. Just when you see these, these phrases, it's talking about the same thing. Sometimes this new heaven and earth, this new idea, is, is considered in terms of a reenaction, reenactment of Genesis, the, the creation story that, is, that God in Revelation is talking about recreating. Um, think about the regeneration of our hearts. The Bible talks about us being regenerate. Sometimes when it's talking about that, it uses the language of God putting a new heart in us, a new one. Sometimes, though, it speaks of washing or purifying our heart. Both are the same thing. Uh, Think, too, about our resurrection bodies. When we die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord until the the new heavens are created to the whole new heaven and earth. That's the whole thing we're talking about. But in the future, at some point, those who are with God now will get new bodies like Jesus has. We'll have resurrected bodies. So what are these? Are these renewed bodies of the ones we had here? Does he fix them up, make them work again? Or are these whole new bodies? Scripture talks about both. I mean, it, it, we can talk about it both ways. So in the same sense, when we are talk, similar to how a new heart and a resurrected body are the renewal of the effects, of the removal, reversal of the effects of sin on us, Think of a new heaven and new earth as earth renewed, earth recreated, 
all new creation or restored creation with all the effects of sin reversed. Okay? That's what new heavens and new earth is. Now, let me read this from Romans, um, which kind of makes the point. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation, that's the new heavens and new earth and us, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, inwardly as we are grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So both we and the rest of creation will be reborn in some sense in eternal physicality, a physical world that's eternal, but that is untouched by the effects of sin. That's what he's talking about. Now, the next verse, verse 2, John begins by talking about the new heavens and new earth, all of creation, which sounds like a whole world or universe. But then the rest of the time, he talks about a city. Again, if you want to get into that, we can talk about why he does that in Message Plus. But what is the significance of this new Jerusalem that he mentions? I'll tell you on the next page. Um, while the kingdom of Israel was united under David, its capital was Jerusalem. So this new Jerusalem is the capital of God's new creation, the place where David's promised heir will reign as king, which is Jesus, by the way. So this is where Jesus will be reigning, and this is where God's presence will be, just as it was in Jerusalem under David's reign. So what is New Jerusalem? In verse 2, John associates New Jerusalem with the bride of Christ. Um, We're accustomed to seeing this language of bride of Christ uh, as meaning the church, which it is. However, I don't think, I think we can sometimes think church in the exclusively New Testament sense. Here's what I mean. We're, we're talking about bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, the covenant of God was made with Israel, and it was described as a marriage. So the bride of Christ was Israel. Hosea describes the bride as those whom Christ pursues despite being unfaithful to him. And then Jesus would describe his relationship to the church in similar terms, that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. So the bride of Christ is the people who are his, which is the church, but it's not just the church beginning in Jesus' ministry in Jesus' day. It's anyone who is his. Uh, This might be a new idea for you, and there's different ways people understand this. If you have questions or disagreements or want to talk about it, again, message plus. But I'm just going to explain um, my perspective here that I think makes a lot of sense. In the Later on in the same passage, John is going to point out that this new Jerusalem has 12 gates representing the 12 tribes. And it has 12 foundations representing the apostles. I don't think this is a message of Israel and the church both being included. I think it's an indication that he's saying they're the same people. God's chosen people enter in, gates, they enter in by the way of a promised Israelite, someone who came through Abraham's seed. And at the same time, that foundation was laid by 12 apostles, people that Jesus trained. So the bride of Christ refers to everyone who puts their faith in God. Israel looked forward to their salvation. They had pictures, foreshadow, clues, but they didn't really have a clear picture of it, but they looked forward to something. We look back to our salvation, 
But we all look to the same thing. Anyone whose faith is in God is looking to Jesus Christ. So in John's vision, New Jerusalem is symbolic of the children of promise spoken of throughout Scripture. Verse 3, God says he's going to dwell in this new city. A loud voice from the throne says, God will dwell with man, they will be his people, and he will be their God. And this may sound familiar because this phrase is used throughout Scripture. Um, Usually, though, it speaks about God living in a temple or a tabernacle, not in a city. For a few examples, in the Old Testament, when God promised to free people from Egypt, he said this. He said that he would dwell with them and they would be his people. Once they left Egypt and built the tabernacle, God promised to dwell in their camp among them in the tabernacle. That's why they set the tabernacle up in the center of the, of the camp. When the people of Judah went into exile, God promised this would be part of his new covenant. You guys will come out of exile, and a new thing is coming, and I will dwell with you. You will be my people, and I will be your God. He continues the same thing in the New Testament. He says, or, or the New Testament writers say, that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. God came to live among us. Jesus said that he would make his home with those who love him, dwelling among us. The body of believers, the church, is the temple, and he dwells among that body. So in John's vision, when he describes the city, it sounds like he's talking about the temple. But he called it a city, but he describes it as a temple. It's a theme that we'll see. That's because he is. It is a city that's described as a temple. These are symbols that John uses interchangeably. The city of New Jerusalem symbolizes the church, and the temple is symbolic of the church as well. In both cases, John is thinking about the body of all believers who place their trust in God. Um, Just so we don't skip by this, in verse 7 and 8, he talks about what's outside the city. And it's not a pleasant scene there. Outside there is, um, if God's presence is inside the city, outside the city is where God's presence is not. This is hell. So he is saying that unbelievers are outside of the kingdom of heaven. They spend eternity in hell, separated from God, and separated from the perfect rest that he created for them. Verses 11 through 21, John continues to describe the city in strange terms. This is a debated topic, but I think there are plenty of clues here to say that this temple that he's describing is figurative. After all, he's describing it in terms of the the church and believers. So, Um, I don't believe that he is saying that this is a future third temple that will be built by humans where the Dome of the Rock is now. Um, Like I said, this is a a very debated topic, and we can certainly talk about the reasons for it in Message Plus. I listed some of them in my notes if you're interested in studying on your own, but I'm not going to belabor that right now. Um, But regardless what you think of the nature of the third temple, there are other things to notice in its description. When he's describing, again, this is the new creation, which he only speaks of as a city, and then when he calls it a city, he describes it. When he describes it, he describes a temple. He describes the proportions of it. If you look at the proportions in Revelation 21 and compare it to 1 Kings 6 and Ezekiel 40-48 and these other places where temples and tabernacles are described, they're in the same proportions. It sounds like he's describing a temple. Uh, the architecture, how it's laid out, sounds like a temple. Uh, the composition... Gold, precious stones, read the description of Solomon's temple. It's the same thing. So we've already seen that the city and the temple um, can both refer to the church. And here, we see the city described in temple terms. 
I think this is because he is just putting it all together. This isn't me, just me, by the way. I'm, I'm taking this, as Anthony said, from uh, one main book that I read and, and a number of other resources that are all along these same lines. Uh, this isn't some new, new idea. Um, so now we see in the beginning of verse 22, John starts the verse by saying, in this city there is no temple. Which like, sounds like it might throw a wrench into things because we've just been saying that it is. But I don't think there's a problem here. I think the reason there's no, no temple in the city is because no temple is needed because the city is a temple. So you don't need a temple if the, the whole city is a temple. Um, this is just how John is describing things. Uh, he finishes the sentence in, in uh, verse 22 by saying the temple is necessary, no temple is necessary because God himself is the temple. If his presence fills the city, there is no need to make a special compartment, a tent, a room, a box to put God in because he's in the whole city. The city's the temple. And as you know, in the new covenant, God is with us always. He's not kept in a box. He's not kept in a room. The veil was torn. He lives within us and among us. We don't need that. But yet he speaks of it because it's a very real thing in a different way. So so now it says there's no temple because God's the temple. But earlier I said the church is the temple, which sounds like I'm really getting confused, which it sounds like. But I think that these all fit together. We've already seen plenty of references that we, the church, are the temple. Let's tie in a few, and that God is. But we'll, let's tie, tie in a couple of passages that show how both go together, I think. Ephesians 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Read Old Testament and New Testament there. With Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, so God is the temple. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Um, interesting kind of tie-in. John was an elder at the church in Ephesus. A lot of people think it's the same John that wrote the, the book of John, the epistles, and Revelation. Um, Ephesus was a church written to in the beginning of Revelation. These aren't people who are unaware of what they're saying. They're saying the same thing. They, they know each other. Uh, this, this, this thing here, this passage in Ephesians, could easily be a message by itself. There's a lot there, but just a few things to mention. Nationality is irrelevant. The point isn't where you're from. The point is whether you are his. Are we his? And it also says, citizens of his city. So there's reference to a city here. The foundation of this is the gospel, and that's key. And it's mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament, apostles and prophets. Um, we are stones, but Jesus is the cornerstone. We are the temple, and he is the temple. This is because we are the body of Christ. That's where this comes from. The temple that is being built will be God's dwelling place. Here's another passage, First Peter. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Again, Jesus is the living stone. We are living stones as well. He's the cornerstone, but all of these stones, we and him together, are being built together into a spiritual house, which sounds to me like temple language. 
And these stones are laid in Zion. What is Zion? It's another word for Jerusalem. So is the temple a reference to Jesus or to the church? I think it's both. I think it's saying it's the same thing. That's why we are the body of Christ. That's part of the reason. Side note here about temple construction. Here's an interesting uh, little nugget. In temple construction, they didn't lay cinder blocks with mortar. Okay, They didn't do even stone and mortar. What they did is got large stones and painstakingly carved them uh, into the perfect shape. This is not a temple. This is not the temple, but this is, I think, an Inca temple. So... This isn't, this isn't bad. It's just the same picture, same idea. Um, but it's at, at least this big. The temple in Jerusalem were probably stones much larger than this. But imagine doing that. Imagine making those. Uh, to carve these into a shape that would be perfect and lock together to keep out the weather and, and stand without falling. Belonging to Christian community can be a painful process as we are carved to accommodate one another. We're living stones. Remember, we are these stones. They get shaved. If you consider what's involved in shaving boulders, uh, I imagine it takes great perseverance, a team of dedicated carvers, and probably inflicts a fair amount of pain. Uh, And to me, this sounds a lot like sanctification or living in the church. We often talk about iron sharpening iron, which almost sounds fun. Um, It's you know a sword or a knife or something, and you get to sharpen each other and you know get better. But uh, shaving boulders sounds painful. uh, If I'm that boulder, which I think I am, Um, but that's what's happening here. We are being shaved. We are being cut against our will because we are stones, and stones are not happy things to be cut. Um, So life in this temple requires committing ourselves to time, hard labor, and a whole bunch of discomfort. Uh, this is not a great marketing campaign. We're probably not going to make a commercial that looks like this. But, but this is the reality of what church is. And I think the way the temple was built reflects this. We need each other. So the beginning of the next chapter, uh, chapter 22, 1 through 5. So we've got a new creation, and he talks about it as a city. And he doesn't mention the new creation anymore, just the city. And then the city is described in the shape of a temple. But then when he describes what it's like, he describes a garden. This is all very confusing until you see the symbolism. So the city that comes down has features of a garden. If you're trying to take this all verbatim, it's very confusing. This is why if you look at, um, well, here's one example. There's a number of times when people have tried to paint what heaven will look like or what the new Jerusalem, new heavens and earth will look like using the dimensions and the descriptions of the Bible as a... As a, uh, as a uh, instructions or whatever, you get wildly different pictures. They're they're all over the place, which I think is the point. This is not describing a an objective thing that you can take verbatim and understand. You need to look at the symbolism. The city has things like trees, flowing water, uh, and fruit. These all remind me of Eden. Uh, flowing water, for instance, another name for flowing water is living water. When you hear living water, what it means in, in their in their context, in their culture, when they talk about living water, they meant moving water, not stagnant water. It's a, so it's a river. So if we're talking about flowing water or living water, that reminds me of some things. Uh, in Eden, there's water that springs up. There's a source of water in Eden near the garden that springs up out of nowhere and feeds the garden for one, and then it splits off into four rivers that go into the other areas. So in Eden, this living water nourishes the garden. Uh, Jesus, when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman, he's the living water offered to her. Drink this water and you'll never thirst again. 
in the New Jerusalem, there's an endless supply of water flowing from the throne of God. These are all pictures, not to show us just about water, although I suppose you can drink it, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is God is a, has a never-ending supply of the things we need to live. Fruit and trees are another major theme in Scripture. Uh, trees and fruit were central to the garden, of course, um, and um, they, they would eat it. If they ate the right fruit, it, would, it was good for their body. And Adam was supposed to cultivate the garden in order to produce more fruit and more trees. So now the message, um, and this is what's normal for me. Everything that I did there was all intro, but I don't know what else to do. So that foundation, my point is, the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, described as, a, well, it is a city, it's described as a temple, and it's garden-like. The reason for, God, for John's language is that he's weaving, a, or he's pointing out a tapestry that's woven all throughout Scripture, this is not a new idea, guys. Look at all these pictures that are throughout Scripture. The parallels and the imagery between Eden, the tabernacle, Israel, the temple, the church, and heaven, these aren't accidents that they all happen to line up with one another. This is all intentional. A few examples. In Eden, Adam was placed in a garden. There was little separation between him and God. That sounds like temple living. In addition, he maintained the temple. So he was a priest of sorts. His day consists of chatting with God and carrying out the life he was designed for. So what was the life he was designed for? Image God, have dominion, multiply and fill the earth, and subdue the earth. And, unsurprisingly, I suppose, he failed at each one of these. Uh, Adam did not image God. Soon, it would become popular in pagan cultures to set up dead statues to represent their gods golden calves, Asherah poles, temples to Baal and Molech, dead statues representing dead gods. In God's plan, humans were supposed to be living representations of the true God, reflections of him that would go out and carry his image into the world to expand that world, to show the world what he was like and to change more people into being like him. Um, According to the story, Adam and Eve seemed to become rather poor reflectors pretty quickly. Um, Their ultimate fall seems to be as a result of Adam's failure to take dominion. We don't know the details here, but it seems that part of Adam's job was to, and taken in the the phrase of take dominion, that he was supposed to be in charge of the creatures of the garden. So if there was a serpent there, he let it in, and he shouldn't have. So this seems to be a failure on his part in not taking dominion, which tragically led to the fall. Uh, We don't know how many kids Adam and Eve had, But judging by the fact that soon afterward a flood would wipe out all of his descendants except for eight, he probably didn't raise great image bearers. It doesn't seem like he did a great job at making people who would reflect God well. And lastly, when God created the garden and he placed Adam in it, he said to cultivate it. It was Adam's duty to subdue the earth. This suggests that part of Adam's original job was to tame the land and push the boundaries outward to expand the garden. Think of this. If he was supposed to, to multiply and fill the earth, would everybody else want to go and live in the, in the desert, in the wilderness? They're all going to want to live in the garden. So if he's supposed to f- multiply, that suggests, along with these other things, that he's supposed to push the garden out so the garden would become big enough for these people that he's creating. But as we see, their sin caused them to be banished from the garden so they didn't accomplish their tasks. Instead, they're sent outside the garden, 
Um, and there, Adam continued in his task, sort of. He tills the soil, but not the soil of the garden, the soil of Eden, the soil that he had been created from when he was placed in, Eden, in, in the garden. This curse means that though he continued to do the work he was designed for, it would be marked by difficulty and futility. Let's look at Moses. While he's at Sinai, God shows him a pattern. It doesn't mean that God showed Moses a tabernacle. He showed Moses a hint of heaven. As we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus is a greater high priest uh, who's in heaven. So Moses saw a glimpse of heaven and patterned the temple and the priestly office after that greater reality that he saw. In the tabernacle, Moses followed this pattern of heaven, uh, of which Eden, Eden was also a foreshadow. These are just different takes on the same themes. In the garden, God was sometimes in their midst. He would walk and talk with Adam in the cool of the day. Likewise, in the tabernacle, God lived in the midst of Israel and would speak from the Holy of Holies sometimes. In both cases, though, it was on God's terms and with strict limitations. In the tabernacle and later the temple, a veil um, was hung between the Holy of Holies and the holy place. And that veil, what was painted on it? Cherubim. There are angels, the same angels, the same beings that are, were set to guard the garden and keep humanity out of the garden are painted on the outside of the veil to keep people outside of the Holy of Holies. Same symbolism, same picture. In Israel, we see the same themes we saw in Adam. Like Adam, Israel was given the mandate to reflect God to the nations. They were fairly terrible at this. Uh, in fact, they routinely intermarried with the enemy and adopted their foreign gods. So rather than reflecting, they took on other bad reflections. When Israel finally arrived in the promised land, this place that has been the target of their, of their, their goal, their, their promise forever, they didn't drive out the enemy from Canaan like they were told to. Like Adam, they refused to take dominion over what God had given them. And though Canaan was their promised rest, just like the garden was Adam's, their blatant rejection of God ultimately caused them to be thrown out of their rest into exile as Adam was thrown out into Eden. Their lives would now be marked, like Adam, by unrest and difficulty. Uh, they multiplied, for sure, but overall, they too raised poor image bearers. And rather than expanding into the surrounding area as they were supposed to, they disobeyed God, they lost their inheritance, and became assimilated into other conquering cultures. Rival kingdoms would arise, and they would take over and expand into the world that God had created for Israel, and they would be lost. So just as Adam was driven out of the garden and lost his fellowship with God, Israel was driven out of their promised land and taken captive numerous times. In fact, they even lost the temple itself and, and their city and had it destroyed twice. So now, let's look at Jesus. This is uh, the second Adam. Scripture refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus perfectly imaged God because he was God. Jesus exercised dominion. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. Jesus didn't procreate physically, but before he left, he created many brothers and sisters for himself um, that were trained to image him well. And lastly, Jesus gave the Great Commission, instructing the body of Christ, his people, to expand the reaches of the kingdom of heaven and in that way subdue the earth. As the church, we have the same call. We are supposed to be living images of God. We are to care for God's creation and nurture it. 
We are supposed to raise up image bearers from within, and we're supposed to continually reach outside and expand the church's borders and bring others in until Jesus comes. This growth isn't characterized, in, in our case, by taking land, but by taking souls. And finally, the, um, in heaven, the Bible's depiction of this new earth where we will live is full of symbolic imagery. In reality, I suspect it will be a lot like earth today, um, but with the effects of sin removed. In other words, much like the garden. The garden, if it was to expand and fill the earth, heaven is the ultimate realization of that. The new earth is what the original earth should have been. Um, the tarnish on our image of God will be polished. The earth will be God's and there will be no adversary or sin or any other influence that would frustrate our dominion. There would be no more ground to take because all the world would be filled with those who have bowed their knee in submission to God. But obviously we're not there yet. We're still working the soil of Eden, if you will, or wandering in the wilderness. Pick your, pick your analogy throughout scripture. Um, we are waiting to enter the city, the new city in the new creation, because it, it's not here yet. So this has been a long road. Um, hopefully something here has painted a picture where you can see this narrative that continues this consistent story throughout scripture. Um, the story of the Bible from beginning um, to, from the fall to the future is all the same. Man sins. God issues a general call for, for people to return to him. Uh, most rebel, but some repent. The repentant are God's covenant people. In the end, the extents of the garden, or the garden's influence will consume the new creation, and until then, those of us in the garden have the task of expanding it. So how do we represent the garden? I'm sorry, how do we expand the garden? Same four points. Image God. We're supposed to actively represent him. I think actively is an important part here. Like I said, the other cultures would have a dead idol, something that just sat there, a statue. We are supposed to live a life that reflects who God is, tell people. Um, We're supposed to cultivate our garden. So what's our garden? This can include personal sanctification. Um, It can be helping others in stone shaving. Uh, It can be working in the nursery, shoveling the church sidewalk, helping with sound, stacking chairs, um, there are a lot of things in this garden that can be done. If you don't have any ideas, talk to Pete, and he will tell you where you can pitch in in cultivating this garden so that it can take on the people that we're supposed to get to bring in and expand it. Okay, So we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Even if you don't have kids of your own, you may have noticed there are some children here. Um, there were, I came down the hall and almost got stampeded. Uh, there's kids all over the place. And here's a secret for you. You can help raise kids to image Jesus, even if they don't live at your house. A huge part of church, that I th- especially a church with kids like ours, that I think is fantastic, is helping train other kids to image Christ. I see it in the hall with people talking to kids who aren't theirs. In the back, when Carl and, the, and other helpers have the kids, uh, when people hold my kids before the service and help... It's, it's a wonderful thing that is helping the church to be fruitful and multiply. And lastly, how do we subdue? We evangelize. And this is always a part where everybody gets uncomfortable and doesn't want to hear it anymore because it sounds like a really weird thing to do. Go and talk about Jesus, which, how do you do that? But honestly, it's not hard. I know that everyone probably says that. But once you do it, once you just talk as just part of your normal 
conversation, it honestly is easy because we don't have a big cell. You and I, I don't know who said this originally, but we are essentially blind beggars telling other blind beggars where we found bread. That's all. We don't have anything of our own to give, but we know where there is something. We know where there is bread of life. There's bread here at Church of the Living God. There is the hope of glory. There's the living water. Um, reconciliation with God. This is certainly not the only church in town. There are plenty of churches here and throughout the world that are wonderful churches. However, this is a faithful church, and it's your church. So we ought to be telling other people about this church. Not because I'm telling you to tell other people about this church, but because if they don't meet Jesus and come into the garden, they will be outside of the garden, which is hell. So it's our job to expand the garden by bringing people in. You can tell them whatever you want. Some ideas that occurred to me when I was thinking of our church. You can tell them that I go to a church where there are loving and accepting people, and it would be awesome if you came because I know you would be loved and accepted. That's not hard. It's an easy thing to say. We have passionate youth leaders who feed your kids more than just pizza. They teach them God's word. We are a church of former addicts and users of people who now are learning to love and help people. We strive to understand God accurately, and this leads us to worship him deeply. We like to eat together and play together. There's all sorts of things that go into making up this garden. You can talk about any of them you want to. Just bring someone. Um, It doesn't matter what we tell them, but until Jesus comes back, it's my job and your job to cultivate the garden and expand it. And that is a very brief scratching of the surface of a long book that I recommend. And there's a whole lot of other topics that are very interesting, but I won't keep you here till tonight. So thanks for bearing with me to this point. Um, I appreciate you coming. Uh, Hopefully Anna has a slide because I didn't put one in of what's happening at Message Plus and other things. Um, But please stick around if you would like. If you've got questions, want to discuss things, come join me in whatever room that is, six maybe. Um, or those things. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for the garden that you have created, and thank you for creating us and putting us all in the garden. And I pray that you help us to cultivate, to be fruitful and multiply inside our garden, and to reach outside, subdue the earth around us, and fill your garden until the time when you come again and that garden takes over the whole world and and we're all reunited to you. Uh, I ask that you be faithful in encouraging us and reminding us, and I pray that we be faithful and um, ask all this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.